Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. All right, what is a great opportunity to be here again, talking about the great book of Jeremiah. So let's all open our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 3. Sorry for the ringing there that I'm hearing in my, my ears. I want to make it the best we can for you back there, so uh, it's a little louder for those in the front here. But let me, we're going to get to Jeremiah chapter 3, but let me, let me start off this way. We're talking about weeping for a nation, that's what we're calling it. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. There was a researcher who wrote a book called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. And he concluded that the many young American Adults actually have a faith characterized by a moralistic, here's what he called it, a moralistic therapeutic deism. And according to this view of God, we live good lives. If if we live good lives and we're kind to others, then God will provide therapeutic benefits to us, like self-esteem and happiness. Other than that, God's not really much involved in the world. That's kind of the general feeling he sensed when he uh, did these researches. He, this view, though, he said, has a profound effect on prayer. He found that American teenagers actually do pray frequently. They said 40% pray daily or more, they said. And only 15% say they never prayed. But their motivation for prayer largely focused on meeting their own needs. So some of the teens interviewed said, if I ever have a problem, I go pray. It helps me deal with my problems. It calms me down for the most part. And praying just makes me feel more secure, and there's something that's helping me out, they said. And another said, you know, I'm, I, I would say prayer is an essential part of success. But here's what I wanted to bring out, he also found that many young Americans' prayers lacked any sense of uh, repentance or adoration. He says, he writes, this is not a religion of repentance from sin. Again, Smith concludes that this, what they believe in is kind of a distant God. He's not a demanding God because his job is to solve problems and make people feel good. There's nothing there to evoke wonder and admiration. Now, when I was thinking about that and just in my own observation, I would say that it's not just teenagers that think this way. The word repent seems to be missing, by and large, in many churches and among Christians. Certainly, the word repent is gone nationally. You're not going to hear it from the president, that's for sure. Sin is not a big deal anymore. We don't see how it hurts God and how it causes a wedge in our fellowship with him. But this is not a new problem, in case you're wondering. <laughs> 2021 does not, have the, uh, does not have the angle on this. 
it's, it was the same in the days of the divided king, kingdom of Israel, and Jeremiah was sent for this very reason, to wake the people up out of their lackluster attitude toward sin and toward their idolatry. And God's frequent picture, as we talked about last week, is that Israel had been a cheating spouse. He had cheated on them, on him. Israel and Judah have broken their marriage vows. And this really goes to the sense of how God felt, not just how he viewed things, but how he truly felt. You were walking away with, from me and going out and, and uh, doing whatever you're going to do with other lovers, other gods. And this message goes all the way now from chapter 3 to chapter 6. And we're going to kind of try to look at a portion of chapter 3 and chapter 4 today, if we can make it, all right? This is a good summary of the heartbeat of God in all of this. And we're going to see how to return to God. And in the key words in, in, verse, in chapters 3 and 4 now are the words return and backslider. We see those often. Matter of fact, it, the word backslider is in this one chapter, chapter 3, more than any other chapter in the entire Bible. The, the return, we're going to keep hearing this theme over and over again. Chapter 3, verse 1, God says, Yet return again unto me, saith the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 12, Return, thou backsliding Israel. Chapter 3, 14, Turn, O backsliding children. 3.22, Return, ye backsliding children. 4, verse 1, If thou wilt return, O Israel, saith the Lord, return to me. Return, return, return. The Hebrew word for turn is just three letters. But out of that very small word, Jeremiah makes this huge thing all throughout the ch these chapters. Rhetorically, theologically, ethically, even geographically, he's talking about turn a lot. It's the simplest meaning of this Hebrew word is to turn, but it can mean to turn towards someone, it can mean to turn away from them, it can mean to turn back, which is repentance, it can mean to return to a physical place. And he uses that word in all these different meanings, in all these different ways. In fact, that word over 15 times in this one chapter. And the word backslide, the Hebrew word for backslide, actually means to turn away. So backsliding and repentance are all about turning. Turning one way or turning the other way. Our God, listen this morning, here's the theme. Our God is a God of turning. He's a God of changing. He's a God of coming back. He's a God of new beginnings and starting over and redemption and repentance. That is our God. In the New Testament, John the Baptist preached a message of repentance. Peter preached repentance. Paul preached repentance. Jesus preached repentance. It is a major theme in this chapter, in this book of the Bible, and all throughout the entire Bible. Some Now, when you hear the word repentance or repent, some might picture the shouting preacher standing up there saying, Repent! That might be sort of your view of that word. But honestly, this morning, let me just say, I don't care how you picture it. <laughs> it's actually one of the most beautiful words in the entire Bible. And it always bears wonderful fruit. And let me just plead with you and say this as we begin. It could be the one thing that's holding you back from where God wants you to be today. A full, genuine repentance. Turning. Turning. This great truth all begins, though, with the heart of God. God is willing to take back the adulterer. 
Jeremiah chapter 3. We talked last week in chapter 2 just how over and over again God pictures his people walking away from him like a cheating spouse. But here in chapter 1, chapter 2 began with the honeymoon, and chapter 3 now begins with a divorce. Verse 1, they say that if a man put away his wife, she go from him and become another man's, shall, she re- shall he return unto her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? But thou hast played the harlot with many lovers. Yet return again to me, saith the Lord. So God gets into their human world through Jeremiah here, and Jeremiah is preaching this message to, to his own people, and he is asking them a question about divorce. The question is based on the law that God gave Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 24 says that if a man uh, or, and puts away his wife, and she, is to, she remarries another, he is not supposed to go back to her. If she divorces that man, he is not allowed to go back and remarry her. Now, this law was for the good of humanity and for the good of society. Through that kind of a law, God was protecting several things. He was protecting, first of all, women from abuse. He was protecting also the sacredness of marriage. And he was protecting society in general. He He did not want these throwaway marriages like often we have today. Throwaway marriages would pollute, it says here, which means to corrupt or defile. Uh, Throwaway marriages corrupt a nation. They corrupt a community. You know, some accuse the Bible of being patriarchal, but God's laws actually were the first to protect women. This was something different than any other nation at the time. Nobody had laws to protect women, but God did. And they did nothing to protect the vulnerable, but God did. The point is, by all accounts here, though, it, God is getting down to their level and saying, on a human level here, if I, if I divorce you, should I allow you, should we get married again? Should we remarry? And by all accounts, God is saying, I should not take you back. I should not take you back as the cheating spouse. But God, in his unending mercy, He says, return again to me. I'll take you back. I should not, but I will. See, just God's willingness to accept Israel back is beyond comprehension. And by the way, if you cannot see the God of love in the Old Testament, then you're not looking. God's love is written on every single page of the Old Testament. Verse 2, lift up thine eyes unto the high places and see where thou hast not been lying with This word literally means ravaged or raped. It's it's a vulgar word. He says, lift up thine eyes to the high places, those places that you committed all those adulterous acts, and see where thou hast not been ravaged. In the ways hast thou thou sat for them as the Arabian in the wilderness, and thou hast polluted the land with thy whoredoms and with thy wickedness. In other words, you sought them out throughout the whole land. You were just searching those gods out. And then those very gods that you sought out took advantage of you. Verse 3, Therefore the showers have been withholden, and there hath been no latter rain, and thou hast a whore's forehead. Thou refusest to be ashamed. Because of all this, because of all that you have done, I have allowed a drought in the land. I have not allowed the, the latter rain. 
Not every drought, let me just remind us, is a judgment of God on sin, but neither can we say it isn't a judgment on sin. And I just quickly want to mention this just by way of applying this. Wake up, California. Wake up, families. Wake up, individuals who live in California. Wake up, Christians. You know, there may be other kinds of droughts in our lives because of going after other loves. Some wonder why they don't feel so close to the Lord anymore. They wonder, how come I just don't have that sense and I'm in a dry place with God? But I often wonder and think about what kind of entertainment choices that are going on in the lives of that very person who feels that drought. And I wonder about the financial pursuits and the selfishness, things that they're going after just for self. We, we so easily can go after other loves. And those other loves become then idols and gods, and we're committing then adultery against the Lord. Verse 4, Wilt thou not cry from this time? Cry unto me, my Father, thou art the guide of my youth. Will he reserve his anger forever? Will he keep it to the end? Behold, thou hast spoken and done evil things as thou couldest. For hundreds of years now, God, Jeremiah is standing here saying, for hundreds of years, God has been patient and has been waiting for you to just cry out to your father and say, we're sorry for what we've done. 700 years since they came out of Egypt, a hundred years since Israel had, had gone into captivity and now Judah is left and they're doing the exact same things. God has waited and waited and waited and waited and waited and patiently sought them to return to him. And he's saying, you've done as evil as you could. How can they come back? How and what does this husband require now for this wife to return? What does God, the holy husband, require for these people to return. And it's the same way what we're about to look at how any individual and any person can return to God. The way home is through genuine repentance. Look at verse 6. The Lord said also unto me in the days of Josiah the king. We're going to go all the way through verse 11 here. Hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel hath done? She has gone up upon every high mountain and under, under every green tree, and there hath played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, turn thou unto me. But she returned not, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery. I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not but went and played the harlot also. And it came to pass that through the likeness of her whoredom that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and with stocks. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah hath not turned unto me with her whole heart, but feignedly saith the Lord. And the Lord said unto me, the backsliding Israel hath justified herself more than treacherous Judah. Now remember, the kingdom was divided at this time. Twelve or ten tribes in the north, they called them Israel. And two tribes in the south called Judah. And God had allowed Israel in the north to go into captivity around a hundred years prior. Because of their rebellion, because of their wickedness. And you would think 
that would have been a wake-up call for the southern tribes to say, okay, we ain't doing that. We are not going to do that. And that's what Jeremiah is laying out here. God says, and her treacherous, you would think it would be a wake-up call, but he says her treacherous or unfaithful, deceitful sister Judah, they saw it all, they saw everything, and yet still went and played the harlot. Why do so many people want to learn the hard way? I don't get it. It happens in homes. Sons and daughters don't listen to their parents' words. It happens in churches. People ignore the pastors and ignore the teacher's warnings. Nah, nah, come on, that's not that big a deal. Nah, that's not that big a sin. Come on. It happens in nations. Look at the push for socialism. Like somehow that's going to work here in America, even though it worked never anywhere else. We, we, a few years ago, we went through Ukraine, and I mean, it just the remnants of communism and socialism are everywhere, and it's horrible, and it's depressing. You can't have a nation that's anti-God and be okay. And that's why Jeremiah is weeping for his nation. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, can a man take fire into his bosom and not be burned? It can't happen. Insanity is doing the same thing, expecting a different result. Judah would not pay attention to what God had just done up north. Now, to be fair, and in this passage he says that, we know at least one person was, had turned to God, and that was King Josiah. King Josiah tried to bring a return to God, a wholesale return to the Lord. He tore down the evil places, commanded the people to turn to God, but the people just pretended. Remember what it just said. They did not turn to God with their whole heart. It was feignedly. It was a pretend. It was fake. It was not genuine. And what an important thing to remember about coming back to God. He knows if it's heartfelt. He knows. We may not know. I may not know. But God knows. God knows if it's fake tears. God's, God knows if it's a real desire for righteousness and pleasing God. God knows. We may not, but God does. Because Judah has seen with their own eyes the consequences of rebellion. Then Israel was more justified than Judah. God says, Judah, you are worse in my eyes than Israel. You are worse. Of whom much is given, much is required. You know, it would be worse for someone like me who grew up in the church, who knows what's right, to go out and rebel and start living my own way and doing wicked things and just turning my back on God. It would be worse for me than for someone who's never read the Bible, never gone to church. It would be worse. And that's what God's saying to Judah. Judah, it is worse for you. You saw, you saw everything and you know. Both of them are sin and both of them will be, will be judged, but I'm telling you, it's worse. And God sees them differently. Verse 12, go and proclaim these words toward the north, God says to Jeremiah, and say, return thou backsliding Israel, saith the Lord, and I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you. For I am merciful, saith the Lord, and I will not keep anger forever. For those few outliers that were still left in the north, God says that they can still turn this ship around. I, I will not be angry forever, although God has every right to do so. And then he gives us a glimpse into what real repentance really includes. Look at this, verse 13. Only acknowledge thine iniquity, that thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God, 
and has scattered thy ways to the strangers under every green tree, and ye have not obeyed my voice, saith the Lord. Again, we're talking about these high hills and green trees. He's referring to these altars that they had built up on these hills and gone and done disgusting acts, all in the name of these false gods. But here we begin to see some specifics about what it means to repent. And number one, repentance is acknowledging iniquity, being open and honest with God about my sin. God says, acknowledge thine iniquity. And in this passage, what we're going to see here is some specifics about repentance. These are the things God wants from us. These are the things God wants from people. God just wants honesty. He just wants an honest heart. Just acknowledge your iniquity. Call it by its first name. Don't just say, I've sinned. No, come to me and say, Lord, I've had pride. I've had lust, I've had greed, I've been selfish, I've been unkind, I've lived in unbelief, in faithlessness, etc., etc. Call sin by its first name, acknowledge it. And when we can acknowledge what God says about it, then we've started the road to repentance. In New Testament, we, it's called confession, it's, it's agreeing with God. It's saying, God, I confess this sin, I've done it, and I'm, I'm ashamed. But in 1 John 1, 9, it says if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I heard about a guy who blamed his dog for driving a, his car into the lake. He said, I put my dog in, he, he, he uh, put it into drive somehow, and then fell on the gas pedal and drove us all the way into the lake. Let me just tell you, at some point, we need to stop blaming other people for our sin, okay? And we need to start accepting responsibility. Acknowledge thine iniquity. Now, while we're talking about repentance, I want to jump to chapter 4 here for more insight. Repentance is such an important theme in the Bible, and it can make or break our relationship with God. In fact, let me just say this. I think, personally, that many people don't love God like they could because they've never learned the value of confession and repentance. Of course you're saved. If you've come to Jesus Christ, that's one, the moment of repentance and God saves you from your sin, but oh, that pesky sin that keeps on coming into our lives. And God says, just repent, deal with it. Come to me, confess your sin, I'm faithful and just to forgive you and get you back on that sweet fellowship with me. But when you never do that, You never see God's hand uh, forgiving you and God's great, great love and care for you and for me. When we confess, when we repent, we constantly see the mercy and the love of God again and again and again and again. And you just get overwhelmed by his mercy and overwhelmed by his love. Jesus said to some, those who are forgiven much love much. And it's interesting, when you know how much you've been forgiven, how much you need his forgiveness, oh, you start to love God more than you ever have before. We'll never fully experience the love of God until we learn to be good repenters. Jeremiah chapter 4, look what it means to be a good repenter. If thou wilt return, O Israel, saith the Lord, return unto me. And if thou wilt, wilt put away thine abominations out of my sight, then thou shalt not remove So we learn here that repentance is returning to God. 
pointing my heart fully in his direction. You cannot go in two different directions at the same time. Repentance is a turning around. That's what the word means. It means a turning. It's turning and going in the opposite direction. There's a little town called Wabash. It's a town in a remote part of Canada, and it was completely isolated for some time. But recently there was a road that was cut through all the way through the wilderness to reach it. And so now Wabash has one road going in and one road going out. That's it. And if someone were, were to travel this road for six to eight hours and get into Wabash, if you really wanted to do that, there's only one way you're going to get out. And it's that same road. And each of us, by birth, we enter into on, to one road, and that is sin. And we're, we arrive in that town called sin, and then there's only one way out. We have to turn. You can't go in both directions at the same time. Repentance is turning to God. It's a complete about face. It's repentance. Repentance is turning, returning to God, pointing my heart fully in his direction. And then notice in this verse, it also is putting away abominations. True, genuine repentance is removing things in my life that do not please God. This may be the hardest one for some of us. Removing those things that displease God and that feed the flesh. What causes you to stumble? You, na- you may need to remove it or remove yourself from it. You know, Jesus talked about getting serious with sin when he mentioned plucking out eyes and cutting off hands. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty serious. In the New Testament, Paul talks about putting on and putting off. Someone told me this week about something that they were trying to get rid of in their life. And they said, it's worse than an alcohol addiction to me. And I'm glad he knew that about himself. And he was seeking to put this thing off. Putting away abominations. It's part of genuine repentance. Putting away abominations. Put it it away, God says. And it's so powerful. Verse 2, and thou shalt swear, the Lord liveth in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness, and the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. Now, these are the blessings of repentance that we're going to look at more in a moment. Verse 3, for thus saith the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart. Ye men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire, and burn that none quench it because of the evil of your doings. So first God uses farming, break up the fallow ground from your heart, and then he uses anatomy, circumcise your heart. Both of these are deep. Both of these are painful. Both of these are transformative. Repentance is breaking the fallow ground, and it's allowing God to transform the darkest parts of my heart. Break up your fallow ground, God says here. God was inviting Judah and Jerusalem to return to him from their hardened condition. Your ground is so hard. Your heart is so hard. You're so hard against me that I've sent prophets, I've sent preachers, and nothing can break that ground of yours. It's uncultivated farmland, and it hasn't been plowed, and it's so hard to plow, but no useful crops can grow until you break it up. And true repentance is breaking that, breaking before the Lord, and finally just saying, I am done with this hard heart. I've pushed you away. My conscience 
has bothered me, but I've hardened it and pushed you away and tried to keep you back, but I'm ready now. The Bible professor Arthur Kundal says, there must be a deep plowing and the eradication of all that hinders growth, both in the realm of the spirit and in nature before there can be a bountiful harvest. Remember David in Psalm 51, 17 says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, oh God, thou wilt not despise. This is a painful thing. This is deep heart work. And when somebody finally breaks, I mean breaks, it's emotional and it is deep and it is powerful. It goes to the deepest part of who we are and, and tears flow out of that because we realize how deeply we've hurt God and how, how hardened we've been against him. And it's painful, like a circumcision, the reference here to circumcision is a reminder that it was a covenantal sign for God's people. A boy of eight years old, a little baby, or excuse me, eight days old, would be circumcised according to the law. But God is reminding his people that you, I, you know what, that's an outward visible thing, but I, what I'm telling you is you need to cut away that heart, that hardened heart. They need to cut away that sin that's just covering your heart. The Lord is asking for a deep repentance. Here's what one author said. The Lord is asking for a deep repentance, a much deeper repentance than we're used to giving. A true repentance that gets to the very root of sin and digs it out. He wants more than just prayers of repentance. He wants deeds of repentance. He wants more than just circumcised Israelites. He wants circumcised hearts. He wants more than just baptized Christians. He wants baptized lives. It's time to get serious about what is going on and what to do if there's, there's this stuff in our life. And, what, and, and God, what does it take? I'll, I'll, I wanna, I'm ready to do what it takes. That's what this breaking up really means. And why is it so deep? Why is it so painful? Because it begins with the statement, I am wrong, Lord. I am wrong. And nobody likes to say that. I am wrong. The exciting thing is that when we do this deep heart work, it results in a complete life change, a complete freedom, life brand new. God specializes in making people new. God is so good. And I guarantee that anybody along the way that you've met that's had, that has a vibrant relationship with God, I mean one truly that is vibrant over the long haul, can point to a time in their life where they broke. And there was a breaking point. There was this moment when there was a cutting away. And it was real. And it was deep. And it was genuine. And it was heartfelt. God is so good. But he will, he'll not only will he take that vile sinner back. But then he'll pour out blessings on them. This is what God does. And here's the exciting part. Look at the fruit of repentance. The fruit of repentance is far reaching blessings. God's going to tell his people here. Verse 14. Turn O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you, and I will take you, one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Return, O backsliding children, for I am married. Look, that has such great depth of feeling there. I am married to you. This is not a cold, dispassionate God. This is a God that's full of warmth, and compassion, and just pursuing his wife. 
He says, I may not bring everybody in the nation back, but I'll bring a remnant back home. One of a city, two of a family. Verse 15, and I will give you pastors according to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. The word pastors means shepherds. He was referring to spiritual leaders, to national leaders even at this time. If God's people, if you'll repent, if you'll return to me, then I will give you help along the way. I'll give you shepherds. I'll give you people to feed you, and I'll never leave you alone. I'll have people right there to help you each and every day. Notice that it says, I will give you. I just want to say this. A good shepherd or a good leader in our life is a gift from God. I will give you. It's a gift from God. Someone who is chosen by God specifically to help you and me grow. Someone who's meeting with God for our sakes. Someone who will feed us with healthy food and someone who cares for our souls. And listen, we should be grateful for people and leaders in our homes, leaders in our churches, in our nation, who are given by God to help us along this road. Then God gives a further view, verse 16. A further view than just here and now. And it shall come to pass when ye be multiplied and increased in the land. In those days, saith the Lord, they shall say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Neither shall it come to mind. Neither shall they remember it. Neither shall they visit it. Neither shall that be done anymore. At that time, they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. And all the nations shall be gathered unto it to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. Neither shall they walk any more after the imagination of their evil heart. So all of a sudden, Jeremiah sort of breaks into almost a song here with this view, a future view, that tells us much more than what is just in the here and now. He says, in that day, in those days, no one will even think about the Ark of the Covenant. You know, it's not even come to your mind. And for the Jew, that would be unthinkable to hear from Jeremiah. But it, because the Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of the presence of God. And so Jeremiah, he's speaking about a day when the very throne of God himself will be right there in Jerusalem. It will be called, the, Jerusalem itself will be called the throne of the Lord. No longer an ark. The ark is not needed. You'll have the presence of God himself. That is Jesus. And all the nations will be gathered unto it, saith the Lord. This is the great millennial reign of Christ on earth. It's what... History and, and, uh, and all of time is pointing toward. And how I look forward to that day. The longer I'm on this sin-saturated, grief-filled world. I mean, I just, every single day, I cannot wait to get to that point. And so when I read something like that, I say, Lord, I can't wait to be there. But there's something more that I want to point out here. Through my study this week, there's a wonderful, amazing truth that emerged in, in a thought that I just wanted to share with you. There's a further reason to repent. There's a deeper reason here. It's not just for earthly blessings for myself. Even though God will give blessings when a person or a nation returns to him. There's a larger reason. And it's an eternal reason. God reminds the Jews for their very purpose for existence here. That all the nations would be blessed. See, remember, Abraham's covenant was that God would give him a land, a seed, and a blessing to all nations. And God reminds Judah that their obedience to God, verse 17 here, 
Their obedience to God leads to the nations coming and the nations being obedient to God. You know, Paul said in Romans chapter 9 that through the Jews we have the glory of God. We have the law. We have the promises. It all came through the Hebrew people. It all came through Abraham's lineage. We even have Jesus himself who came through that line. This is the blessing for all the nations. The Jewish people were God's chosen people to bring into the world all of these things that would bless everybody, you and me. So God says, Judah, repent and do this for your sake and for the sake of the entire, all the nations, for the sake of all people. And here's the lesson for us as Christians. There are people that need to come to Christ through you. You sitting here and me standing here. And the longer we hold on to our sin and refuse to repent, the longer those people stay in darkness. Repent for eternal reasons. Repent for the nations. Repent so that you will be changed and you will be blessed and the nations will be blessed as well. And then Jeremiah recounts the blessing of Judah and Israel reuniting. Verse 18, in those days... The house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel. They shall come together out of the land of the north to the land that I have given for an inheritance unto your fathers. There's no time to read the rest, but let me just jump to this last point. The consequences of non-repentance, destruction upon destruction. God has held back for hundreds of years, but look at the judgment that comes. We're going to read these few verses and be done here. Declare ye Judah and publish in Jerusalem And say, blow ye the trumpet in the land, cry, gather together, and say, assemble yourselves and let us go into the defense cities. Set up the standard toward Zion, retire, stay not, for I will bring evil from the north and a great destruction. The lion is come up from his thicket, that's Babylon, and the destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make thy land desolate, and thy cities shall be laid waste without an inhabitant. For this... Gird you with sackcloth, lament and howl, for the fierce anger of the Lord is not turned back from us. Real quick, I want you to imagine there was one day that you're walking alone and God gives you the clearest, most frightening vision that you've ever seen. You're walking along, just enjoying Lake Tahoe, beautiful day, and God gives you this vision. It's a global pandemic that makes COVID look like nothing. This one is going to wipe out 80% of America. You see children crying outside their homes because their moms and dads are dead inside their house. You see hospitals abandoned because all the professionals have died and people are banging down the doors and there's violence in the streets. People are shooting and looting just to get food for themselves. The stench of death is everywhere. You can hardly, when you start to take all this in and you see this coming, And you can hardly pick yourself up off the dirt because of what you've just seen. If God gave you that vision and told you that it's because of America's sin as a nation, here's the question. How would you tell everyone about it? And do you think anyone would even listen to you? I think that's the glimpse that we get of Jeremiah's ministry. God says, Jeremiah... I'm going to give you vision after vision after vision. I want you to go tell them what you've seen. But let me just tell you, people aren't going to listen. 
Um, there's a vision of coming destruction. It's going to decimate the land. It's going to rip apart families. It's going to kill loved ones. It's going to destroy governments. It's going to burn everything to the ground. And you, Jeremiah, you young man, he was young, you need to stand up and preach this. And Jeremiah took all this in and he could barely contain the pain in his heart. That's why he's called the weeping prophet. Look at verse 19. My bowels, my bowels, I am pained at my very heart. My heart maketh a noise in me. I cannot hold my peace because thou hast heard, O my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Destruction upon destruction is cried, for the whole land is spoiled. Suddenly are my tents spoiled and my curtains in a moment. I just want to end with this. We come to Christ once and for all. And non-repentance leaves people devastated, destroyed, and we miss the point of our whole existence. But God, we can come to Jesus. We come to Christ once and for all in salvation. That's initial repentance. But then there are moments along the road that we just need to turn back. And though we know we're going to heaven, though we know for sure that we have a home in heaven, and, but there's those pesky sins that come up. And we, so that we can have fellowship with him, we need to come back again and again and turn back and turn back and turn back. Be a good repenter. It's clearly what God desires. It's clearly what he begs for. Judas committed suicide when he was confronted with his sin. Peter repented and became mightily used by God. That's the difference. That's the two differences. Come back home. Come back home. Just repent. You're still his child. Come back home. Lord, we trust you today. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.